Hey, did you guys look up this? Uh, that's the blood pressure cuff that they used. That thing is awesome looking. Hello, and welcome to The Curbsiders, a podcast where we deconstruct topics in internal medicine, providing you with the kind of practical knowledge that no one taught you in medical school or residency, but probably should have. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, guys. Happy Hi, to be you? here, Matt, as always. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Speaking of the blood pressure cuff question, you know, on this episode, we're going to highlight the recent sprint trial and their uh, intensive versus standard blood pressure control and how that challenges JNC8. But before we get into it, we wanted to just talk about and reminisce, if you will, about uh, JNC8. Do you remember where you were when JNC8 came out? Can we please have a moment of silence for JNC8? Okay, it's done. Thank you. <laughs> I think it is done. I think JNC8 is completely done. So, I mean, I remember when JNC8 came out, and I, um, I mean, I felt like, first of all, it was a little bit of a relief because all these older patients who I was afraid of falling and having low blood pressure and everything, I was able to kind of universally start relaxing blood pressures. I just remember there being a lot of, a lot of uh, criticism of it. Either it wasn't strict enough blood pressure or the blood pressure was too strict. It's, it was definitely controversial, and this, this sprint trial will probably just add to the controversy, which is why we wanted to highlight it. Stuart, do you have any, any takes on this? I'm sorry. Yes, I do. I have plenty of takes. I'm still looking at this. Are you sorry because you weren't paying attention? You were still no, looking at this. Are you, are you trying I'm, to figure out how to buy No, I'm, I'm still cuff? looking at this, at this Model 907. This thing is the Cadillac of blood pressure cuffs. I just, I love this thing. Look please, at it. Please, tell, it's, why don't you tell our listeners why, why this blood pressure cuff is so awesome. By the way, we are not getting paid any endorsements uh, from Amran, however you pronounce their, their name, to, uh, to talk about this I, cuff. I just, the, the, the cuff that we use in clinic, I swear. Air. It's probably like thirty years old. It's compared to this thing. This thing is like this is like the uh, it's like the iPad versus versus your your, your run of the mill just uh, you know your college ruled paper. I mean this, this thing is awesome. This is beautiful. It's sleek. The lines are beautiful. It's it's just like a Ferrari. I do have to say though, looking at the stock picture, that blood pressure cuff is not big enough. Yeah, I'm just, very it's, unrealistic it's, that uh, patients in our clinic would be able to fit that cuff. Um, I <laughs> yeah, like how. This was, uh, but by the way, Stuart, you mentioned something about our clinic. I just wanted to let the listeners know whenever we say our clinic, we're actually talking about the virtual hospital where we ha- are forced to say we work at, which is Cashlack Memorial Hospital. It turns out that our <laughs> it turns out that our actual employer would prefer that we don't talk about them on air. And we're okay with that. So uh, we will just be sort of talking about Cashlack Memorial, which is the virtual place where we practice. So uh, they do not have this cuff, and we wish they would. Hint, hint. (laughs) We should get it. I'm going to put in a request. You probably will not get it. It's probably expensive, too expensive for us. Anyways, you said, did I have any points about this? what specifically did you like about this cuff, Stuart? Oh, I I just like the way it looks, really. I mean, I'm I'm pretty vain when it comes to my... uh, (laughs) healthcare technology it has to look beautiful it has to it just has to be appealing that way my my patients look at it because that 
that, that first uh, impression that my patients get whenever they look at my blood pressure cuff, my stethoscope. You know, I, I, I don't walk around with an electronic stethoscope because it's more useful. I walk around with it because the patients are just enamored by it. <laughs> and then they say, oh, my gosh, this guy just knows what he's talking about. Look at all the stuff he's carrying with him. You have an and electronic one? It's solid well, gold as well, yes. It's solid gold, yes. Oh and with a God. platinum, it has platinum earpieces. So it, anyways, so my patients just like, they look like look at my technology and my my gear that I that I walk in there with, my doctor's bag. Your I don't swag. even know what I'm talking about half the time. But but you know, they, they're convinced by it. And maybe, just maybe, I'm maybe this model nine oh seven magically reduced their blood pressure because how how sleek it looks. Well that's that's you might be right there, Stuart. I I think everyone's heard the evidence <laughs> that that physicians physicians if the patients like you and trust you, then they're then right. whatever treatment you prescribe is more likely to work. So I'm done with it. Okay. Our guest on this episode was the lovely Dr. Paul Williams. Unfortunately, due to scheduling and children and whatever, Tony and Stuart were unable to be present for the interview. So you'll hear me talking with Dr. Paul Williams. And after that interview, we'll come back to Tony and Stuart for a little bit more of their take on the sprint trial. Uh, Dr. Paul Williams, our guest for this episode, is an internist currently practicing at a large academic center in Philadelphia. Paul and I discussed the sprint trial, and what its implications are for the future of hypertension management. Paul is an excellent clinician educator, and we're honored to have him stop by the curbside to drop off a little knowledge food for your brain hole. I'm going to say that sentence again because I don't know if I want to go that silly. Uh, Paul is an excellent clinician educator, and we were honored to have him stop by the curbside to drop off some knowledge. Paul, thanks for coming on. Matt, thanks for having me. So the SPRINT trial was a randomized controlled open-label trial containing over 9,000 patients at multiple sites in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Uh, It made headlines after being stopped early after 3.26 years in September 2015. Participants were at least 50 years old with a systolic blood pressure 130 to 180 and taking anywhere from 0 to 4 antihypertensive medications. The intensive group was treated to a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 and the standard group to a systolic blood pressure of less than 140. The primary outcome was a composite of major adverse cardiac events, including MI, acute coronary syndrome, stroke, acute decompensated heart failure, and cardiovascular death. Several secondary outcomes uh, were also looked at and included each cardiac event taken individually, as well as all-cause mortality. Adverse events were also reported in the trial. The study planned for a maximum of six years of follow-up and predicted an event rate of about 2.2% per year for the primary outcome. However, the intervention was stopped early owing to a significantly lower rate of the primary outcome in the intensive treatment group, with 1.65% per year versus 2.19% per year in the standard treatment group with a hazard ratio of 0.75 and a p-value of less than 0.001. So, Paul, did you think that this was a well-done trial? Did you have any concerns about its inclusion or exclusion criteria? You know, it's when I first read this trial, I was actually desperately hoping it would either be a poorly done trial or that the results would be different. Um, I think just in terms of general practice, I'm, I'm something of a minimalist, and I, I prefer to not add medications if possible. And, I, and I've become sort of spoiled by sort of an older patient population, particularly with the new GNC-8 guidelines, which I was thrilled about. 
um, where things are a little bit liberalized, where I could just sort of pat them on the head and say, your blood pressure's up a little bit, but that's probably okay, and just kind of send them on their way. Um, having said all that, I think that probably this trial was so well done that I may actually have to change my own patient practice and sort of select patients. I think just in terms of sheer power of the trial, in terms of the way that they had almost pristine matching of the uh, intensive arm versus the conventional arm, um, and sort of the thought that went into the inclusion-exclusion criteria, I actually think that this was an extraordinarily well-done study, and I think it's probably going to change practice significantly. Um, though I know talking with you before, you maybe have some different conclusions about that. Well, I, I, I do have to agree with you that it was a very well-done trial, and we can get into it a little more at the end, but my definitely my, I do have some reservations mostly related to uh, the logistics of implementing this, this trial in real practice. So what did you think about the, um, the significance of some of the adverse events that they reported in this trial? Because the, the trial certainly reported um, significant decrease in lots of things that we wanted it to, like all-cause mortality and, the, and all, all the significant components uh, part of the composite out, uh, primary outcome. However, uh, there were some a- adverse events. So what did you think about those? And actually, uh, Matt, if you don't mind, I... I just I want to touch on one of the exclusion criteria, unless you want mm-hmm. to come back to that at a later point. I know that some of the controversy about this is the exclusion of diabetics, which is sort of... No, I, no, let's, I, let's talk about that now. Yeah, it, which is, I mean, it's obviously a huge part of my, my patient population, I'm sure a large part of yours, and obviously diabetes and high blood pressure tend to be fairly comorbid. Um, and so excluding that, I, I think it was an interesting choice. I think a lot of people are going to find fault in the trial for doing that. Um, I know the ACCORD trial was actually referenced in this trial, uh, in terms of sort of the same concept except in a diabetic population with intensive blood pressure lowering versus sort of the conventional 140 over 90. And the the outcomes, and uh, Matt, correct me if I'm misremembering this, it's, it seemed like they seemed to be underwhelmed with the results of it, but the adverse events were fairly significant. So ultimately they concluded there was no benefit in really intensive lowering in diabetic patients. I think looking at, at the results, though, the one, the one reduction that was seen was actually in, I believe, uh, both fatal and non-fatal stroke. Though when you looked at sort of all-cause uh, cardiovascular death or if you looked at MIs or even the heart failure, I don't think that was uh, nearly as strong. I think it was more a trend, if anything, not quite significant. Right, right. I did think it was very interesting taking this trial in light of the findings of the ACCORD trial where they didn't really see that uh, significant benefit. They, they just saw that the trends, which were not statistically significant, and uh, they were looking at the same blood pressure goals. So I, I actually thought it was appropriate to exclude diabetics from this trial because that trial has pretty much already been done. Uh, the, the things that I like to point out from this sprint trial were that they excluded nursing home residents, um, patients who had had a prior stroke, or um, patients living in an assisted living. And the reason the reason that I like to point that out is because in my own practice, I have a lot of patients with those comorbidities. So I wouldn't want to inappropriately apply this trial to them. Right, and I think that's a fair point. I think both in terms of uh, the diabetes exclusion, I, I like your point that the ACCORD trial probably answered that question. I think also there's a question of um, the ethics of including them when it's known that reducing the blood pressure actually decreased the risk of stroke. And I think that same ethical consideration goes to stroke patients where the evidence is pretty compelling sort of after the initial acute stroke. The, the evidence for lowering the blood pressure is pretty compelling. So having them in a more liberal arm might actually conceivably be considered unethical. So I think those exclusion criteria actually make a lot of sense to me. Right. So 
moving on to the to the adverse events seen in this trial, is there anything there that really stood out to you as significant? Well, it's I, I found the re- the results in the adverse events incredibly confusing. Actually, uh, it's not not surprising you would expect more adverse events with more intensive therapy, especially the, the electrolyte abnormalities. That makes perfect sense. But sort of the, the the lack of orthostasis in the intensive arm and the fact that that didn't lead to falls it was just completely counterintuitive um, to to all that I would expect uh, with this. I really I don't have a great explanation for it. So I'm I'm unsurprised that there were more adverse effects in the intensive treatment arm. But the way that those shook out the actual study itself, I find actually very confusing. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or why that might have uh, turned out the way that it did. Well, no, they saw they saw that there was more hypotension, more syncope, which makes sense. However, they didn't see more injurious falls, which you think would probably track along with hypotension and syncope, but apparently they didn't in this study. Right, exactly. Right. And then also you you would expect if you're being more aggressive about lowering the blood pressure that that you would have more orthostasis, but it seemed like almost a paradoxical effect where they didn't see more orthostasis. So I, I can't physiologically explain that and I haven't read anyone um, who was able to explain that. I think they kind of glossed over it even in the, the discussion of this paper. <laughs> Absolutely it is. But um, the, the, other, the other adverse event that I, that I just highlighted in this was patients who, had, who, who did not have any chronic renal insufficiency at baseline did have a significant risk of, of developing either chronic kidney disease or a significant drop in their creatinine clearance th- during the trial if they were included in the intensive treatment arm. So that was something to think about. Yeah, and I, it's, I've talked to nephrologists about this, and obviously cardiologists um, will never say the heart defers to the kidneys. They, they will cheerfully diarrhea heart failure patients <laughs> until the creatinine is 11, and I, which is completely understandable. You know, it, but um, just talking to the nephrologist about this, it's, it's not surprising that you would see this. And in fact, it's, it's almost um, acceptable collateral damage in his eyes in that the, the kidneys are by definition sort of a pressure filtration system. So when you're when you're decreasing that pressure, you're going to decrease the way they function. So you have to pick, and from a nephrologist standpoint, this will continue to be hotly debated. You have to pick whether it's worth that decrease in GFR to actually decrease the cardiovascular mortality, or if it's if you're actually sort of boxing out the kidneys and then, and then all the problems that come along with that. Though, which also paradoxically includes increased cardiovascular mortality. So it's it's kind of a crapshoot. But if I guess what I'm getting at is, if you're going to intensively lower blood pressure, you're probably going to have to expect a hit in GFR. So that's that's almost not surprising, right? The only other thing I wanted to ask you about this trial, uh, and, and you can, I'll let you make your closing remarks, but what did you think about um, this trial taken? Um, everyone points to the HIVET trial as one of the trials that sort of tells us it's okay to lower blood pressure in these older folks, and but also from that trial, they saw that it's okay to have a systolic blood pressure a little higher than what we used in this tri- trial for our older patients. And 30% of the patients in this trial, roughly, were over 75 years old. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think the HIVET and then some other trials uh, point towards a couple of things. I, I think that, I think in some, to get to the bottom of your question, which maybe goes to my concluding points, is that this, this trial is going to change my practice, but that change is going to come with selected patients. So I think it's going to come to, to patient selection, whether you do more intensive blood pressure lowering or not. I think sort of one of the other things that sort of HIVET and this trial get at is this whole concept of the J-curve 
um, and at-risk populations is probably not really a thing, and that, and that lower blood pressure is by and large or better. I think the exact number is going to be open to debate for a while, but I, I think it's going to be sort of, it's, it's almost self-evident, but the fact that lower blood pressure is just by and large going to be better than this whole J-curve idea is, I think, going to be thrown out the window in, in high-risk patient populations. Right. So the, the th- I agree with you that this, this trial will change my practice. Uh, I see a largely geriatric population, and I... I struggle to try to take some of these people off of the. I struggle to take some of these people off of their medications, let alone um, add medications to get better blood pressure control. So I think for my for my older patients who are doing well, who have a blood pressure that is easily controlled or controlled without uh, considerable morbidity and mortality, then I probably will uh, go ahead and try to shoot for this lower blood pressure goal. However, if if they are if they're struggling to get a blood pressure less than 140 over 90, which I'm sure you've seen the seen the statistics about 50% of the patients in this country who are supposed to have a blood pressure less than 140 over 90 do not. So I think it's going to be hard to get people down to a lower goal of less than 120 uh, systolic. However, for patients who can tolerate it, I will probably be doing it, and I'll probably stop my practice of having a 75-year-old with a blood pressure of 115 who seems to be tolerating it okay, when they ask me if they can stop one of their blood pressure medications, I really have to think twice about it now if they would meet the inclusion criteria for this trial. Oh, that's that's a tremendous point. And it's, I had not thought about it in that way in terms of sort of not backing off of medications and patients who tend to be well-controlled. Actually, I like that approach very much. And I, I agree with your practice or, or your future practice goals. For, for me personally, I'm my I'm just going to be sort of less permissive in those patients who have high, high functionality. You know, it's, it's sort of across the board. I'm sort of, I've been content to let high, higher blood pressure slide because I'm trying to avoid polypharmacy. I'm trying to avoid falls. I'm trying to avoid orthostasis. I'm, you know, thinking about quality of life. But on the other hand, nothing ends quality of life like death. So I, I think I'll probably be a little bit more aggressive with my blood pressures in the patients that I think I'll have adherence and that it won't be burdensome or actually cause sort of a more adverse outcome uh, sooner rather than later. That's true. And the, the, the main thing, one of the main things that I struggle with uh, every day is polypharmacy. And the intensive group did require at least one more blood pressure med, about an average of three meds to control them versus an average of about two meds in the standard treatment group. So that's another major consideration for me and something that might limit me implementing this because a lot of my patients uh, are not willing to start new medications. However, if we can... This, this trial might give you some good ammunition to try to convince people that it might be beneficial to their mortality to add an, add an extra medication if it's going to get them under control. Yeah, it's, that's a great point. I think from, from my standpoint, one of the things I deal most with is, is medication adherence and whether it's sort of due to finances or to poor health literacy or because it's just burdensome to take 14 pills in the morning. Um, in any case, I deal with a lot of that. And it's funny because one of the exclusion criteria but this trial is a history of non-adherence with medications. So the applicability to sort of my patient population at large is going to be a little bit tricky. But again, it'll come down to individual, individual patient selection rather than being really dogmatic about just treating everyone's blood pressure less than 120 and, and see what happens. Well, Paul, thank you so much. Before I let you go, I know that uh, we when we were in training together, you were, in my opinion, much better than most people about keeping up with things. And uh, 
for some of our listeners out there, I'm sure they'd be interested to know what sort of resources you find helpful or efficient for, for keeping on, th- on top of things. I'm sure some people listening probably didn't even know the sprint trial came out when it came out. So, I mean, this is going to be sort of a, an unsatisfying answer because I feel like it's obvious. It's easier to say than it is to do. But uh, just subscribe to sort of your major professional organization uh, journals. Like for, for us, I mean, New England Journal of Medicine, the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, and JAMA are going to sort of be the big ones. So at least make an effort to read those three when they sort of come at you every month. And if you have more specialized interests, great. But it, by and large, sort of focus on sort of the big-time journals. Also, another resource I like very much is the um, – if I'm allowed to plug it, I'm not sure. The ACP's Journal Watch, which is the American College of Physicians, actually has an app that will sort of, I think on a weekly basis, sort of tell you the really relevant journal articles that are worth reading, worth knowing, and actually have experts sort of rating how applicable they are to your practice and what the quality of the journal articles is. So I think that's an excellent resource in terms of sort of picking and choosing and using your time wisely uh, and keeping up to date. Great. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Uh, I think that's all we have for today. And uh, we would definitely love to have you on the show again. Uh, you can keep us up to date on something else coming down the line. All right, sounds good. It was entirely my pleasure, Matt. It's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Did I tell you about this Model 907? <laughs> I definitely think we need to put some of that stuff in there. Uh, yeah. Anyways, the other thing that, that I was going to mention the choice of medications that they used and what was provided for them. Now, we, we've always talked about how we like chlorothalidone and the all-hat trial, which used chlorothalidone as the, the metric to, to kind of compare with, um, it kind of established chlorothalidone as the, the, uh, the, the go-to diuretic medication. Unfortunately, we, we use a lot of HCTZ. I'm convinced the reason why we use HCTZ has absolutely nothing to do with, with its efficacy, but it has a lot to do with the fact that our patients can pronounce HCTZ. That's easy, right? It's harder to say chlorothalidone. But the thing that strikes me here is that this was provided, but it was provided also with a combination pill that had azelsartan. Before this trial, I had never heard of azelsartan or Takeda Pharmaceuticals, to be quite honest, who provided this medication free of charge. After Mm. I read this trial, so after I read the trial, I actually looked at the the hospital that we work at and, and you know, I was kind of curious to see if, if there was this, co- this magical combination pill that had chlorthalidone because I've always used chlorthalidone and then maybe a, a secondary ACE or an ARB um, if I'm going to add a secondary agent. But the problem is with polypharmacy, that's always going to be a concern. So they actually have a combination pill that has azelsartan and chlorthalidone. Even at the, far, the, uh, the, the, har- the, the Even at the hospital that we work at, they have this combination pill. It's non-formulary. It can be difficult to obtain it, but they have it. And I was quite surprised. So that is actually one of the things that I, I, I think is a take-home point for me is that this is a medication I didn't know about. This was actually what they used in this trial. And those patients that had the lower blood pressure target had better outcomes. So maybe this is, this is something I need to consider using this medication. And when they give me kickback from the pharmacy saying, hey, look, according to the SPRINT trial, this is what they used. And they had better outcomes in the lower blood pressure target group. So maybe we should start using this more often. Just a, a thought, but and then the other thing is it helped to prevent polypharmacy for our patients on chlorothaladone who frequently need an ACE or an ARB because of the uh, significant hypokalemia with uh, chlorothaladone. Yeah, I'm always surprised when Cashlack Memorial Hospital has any anything on Cashlack. formulary. So Tony, I think 
I think Stewart's had his say. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to chip in here? I think number one, I completely agree with what you were saying during the uh, during your talk with Paul, and that you know if I have a patient who's at goal and has no issues, who's elderly but meets the um, inclusion criteria in the sense that he may or she may actually derive benefit, I'm probably more likely to keep them on their current regimen. Um, and we'll talk to them about the study, what we know and what we don't know. And, uh, you know, it goes back to that whole idea of patient-centered medicine. You know, they have to make the choice at the end of the day. I give them all the data. And the last thing I would say is that the kind of talk that we all had about this study, I think it's important to do with any kind of major study, you know, amongst colleagues, et cetera, because at the end of the day, we're the ones that are kind of out in the field implementing all these guidelines and the findings from the studies. So if if we're not talking about it and analyzing it and figuring out whether it's any good as far as uh, with regards to our patients, then uh, I don't think we'll, you know, we would be doing anybody any good. And guidelines come out, what, every three to five years. So JNC8 just came out. Um, We're in the end of December 2013, I believe. I don't know. It took took a while between seven and eight and uh, we're we're not even three years away from JNC eight yet. I think it came out it'll December be, uh, twenty thirteen. It'll be JNC eight point one. <laughs> That's right. right. And the, actually, it's it's just going to say use the Omron uh, blood pressure cuff. That's and right. uh, just right. I think w- one final thing about the Omron cuff. The the reason why we were looking it up is because in this the way they measured blood pressure in this study, which I don't think Paul and I talked about in our interview, was that they had a patient sitting by themselves in a quiet room. Yeah. The blood pressure was measured three times by the automatic cuff without any medical staff present, certainly no physician present, and they were getting lower blood pressures than what we probably get at Cashlack Memorial when the patient rushes in from the lobby late to their appointment and gets a blood pressure checked right away. So yeah. the nice thing about this cuff is that you can you can automate you can set it, have the patient sit there, and it can pump up three times and give you the average while the patient's waiting for the physician. And that's probably a more accurate way than we routinely check blood pressures in clinical practice. So yeah. I'm yeah, always right. questioning the blood pressures I get in the office. They, and they, they literally described blood pressure nirvana. I mean, well, the, they, the patient- they, 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 they do, but they don't as well. Because uh, it doesn't mention anything about the, the, how the patient was seated, whether his arm was at chest level or whether it was, you know, he was raising his arm above his head or, or you know, her, her head. So, you know, it, it may not be blood pressure nirvana, but it's certainly better than the way that we check it at, at our hospital. Yeah, I mean, close enough in the sense that, you know, I get people coming in and it's 160 <laughs> over whatever, blood, uh, the heart rate's... I don't know, 105, and then yeah. they sit down for like five minutes. They're like, yep, I feel awesome, and heart rate's down, blood pressure's coming down. I'm like, well, not only are you out of shape, but that's not a great way, at least as far as we know, to uh, – <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what blood pressure are we treating? I guess that's the – Could you imagine if the ER ran like that? You know, <laughs> they run, patients run in, their heart rate's 120, and uh, they give them all beta blockers. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, and I also have to come back to the fact that you know they were able to get the people back in one month out every time to get them down to goal, and then they still couldn't get people below the one hundred and twenty. I find that uh, interesting, but 
Yeah. In a, uh, in a study with optimal randomized controlled trial with, you know, as optimal conditions as you can get, you still, you still can't get people below 120. So in the real world with compliance and cost issues and and whatnot, it's, it's going to be a lot harder to get patients down low. So I don't think the absolute number 120 is the most important part of this. I think it's just like less than, less than 130 in the low 120s, you know, if, if the person's there and you can keep them there, then, then that's going to probably have more benefit than just letting them hang up by 140. Uh, if they, you know, for patients who would have met the inclusion criteria here. So, all right. Well, guys, uh, I think, I think that we've said enough about the sprint trial. Yes. So Stuart, did you want to end the show or should we just, I think we should just go for it. Stuart. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm still here. Uh, were you gonna, are you gonna do the outro or do you want Tony to do it or? Oh no, I completely forgot about it. Hold on. <laughs> let me pull it up. Okay. Thank you for listening Why to the Tony Curbsiders. Just... You can find the show notes along with links to any websites, apps, books, or other resources mentioned in tonight's show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash show notes. If you like what you're hearing, then please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This helps others discover the show. If you'd like to recommend a topic or guest for a future show, then you can hit us up on our website, thecurbsiders.com forward slash contact, on Twitter at thecurbsiders, or check out our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Google+. Hit us I, up hey, on our website. I, I, almost have the script, <laughs> this, I almost have the script up. Hold on. For the Curbsiders, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. I've been Dr. Sideri. Okay, I got the script up, guys. I got it up. All right. Oh, all right, fine. I've been Dr. Brigham. You're killing me, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs>